Welcome back to another segment of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion on the reading or any other suggestion, please feel free to write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And now let's continue with Theodore Pratt's The Money, segment 18. George put on one of his best sports shirts and a pair of regular long trousers and managed to get out of the house without his mother seeing how dressed up he was. He figured he had to put on a good appearance if he was to enter financial circles. He knew the stock brokerage house where he meant to go, and on the bus into town he reflected on his plan and how he would approach carrying it out this morning. The thought came to him after he reflected on how well it had worked with the stone man saying nothing about the five hundred dollars paid to him for Mr. Wesley's headstone. That was neat. It showed it was true what his father said, that people would do anything for money. And he had the money. The others thought he had spent quite a bit of his, and he knew Paul thought he had more than he did. He didn't know exactly how much Paul had, but George was sure he had more. He even saved the fifty cents they'd been so hard-nosed about, putting that in his pile. He had spent very little on himself, and even added to his holdings from his regular allowance. He put his hand in his pocket and felt his roll. It was so big, being mostly in small bills, that he had to hold it together with a rubber band— Eighty-six dollars and forty cents. He was quite sure that he would buy one share of what he wanted. He'd heard his father read off in the paper one day to his mother an account of somebody who had bought a share in what was called a blue-chip stock twenty-two years ago and held on to it, and with dividends, increase in worth, and stock splitting, it came to be worth over fifty times its original cost in that time. That was money, his father said. That was the way to make money. If you had the original cost and could hold on to it for all that time, just forgetting it, putting it away, and not even thinking about it. George figured if you could do that with one piece of stock, think what you could make with a lot. And he was young enough to wait. Today he was going to find out if his plan would work. He'd buy one share of stock if the stockbrokers would assure him that it would be just between them and him and nobody else would even know. If that worked, he would buy a lot more. In fact, he'd buy $42,000 worth, the amount of his fifth interest in the money. He might even deduct a portionate part for what they had spent so far, but he wasn't sure about that. He probably would take the whole 42000 it was coming to him, the way he had to nursemaid them. If it worked today, the next morning he'd get to the clubhouse before anybody else got there and take out his share and then go down to the stockbrokers and make a real investment. He'd put the papers in a good place he had, and years later he'd really be in the money. Big money, more than $210,000. Why, he might even be worth that million Joey first yawped about. Of course, the other musketeers would discover it in not too long a time, and almost certainly the first time they opened the box they would see. He couldn't keep it from them, but so what? What could they do about it? They weren't going to tell anybody. He wouldn't be taking anything, or not much anyway, that didn't belong to him. 
Why, they might even want to do the same thing. He'd even help them, steer them how to buy the stocks. He'd handle it for them, and no reason he couldn't take a commission. Maybe not exactly a commission, because the stockbroker took that, but just a little cut somewhere along the line. That was one of the reasons he hadn't proposed, generally, that investing their money in the stock market would be a good way to handle it. He thought of this all by himself after they'd failed to find a way. And he should profit from it. It was a good plan, a very sweet arrangement. He could see no flaws in it, of course, if the stockbrokers would agree. To get his business, he felt pretty sure they would. He didn't hesitate when he arrived at the offices of the stockbroker on one of the busy downtown streets. He walked right in, past a young lady sitting at the reception desk who was talking with the woman standing there and did not stop him. George went over to the edge of the section where quite a number of men sat on chairs facing a big screen board with the latest quotations on it in white and red numerals which constantly changed. To one side of this, high up, was a projected tape of the ticker keeping track of the prices, offering instant information. Below it was the ticker tape machine itself, clattering loudly. The men in the chairs watched the various sets of numbers, mostly with grim expressions on their faces. They stared as though fascinated and hypnotized. Occasionally one of them smiled, but usually they seemed worried or nervous at the pulse reading of the nation's health. In back of them, a number of men sat at desks talking into telephones. They, too, watched the various accounts of prices and made notes on pads of paper. They did not seem to be as concerned as the others, but they looked harried. George turned as he heard the receptionist, now free, address him. "'Can I help you?' she asked. "'Sure,' said George. "'I want to buy a stock.' She gazed at him. She appeared to study a new situation and how best to handle it. She murmured, "'I'll call Mr. Dunbar, our assistant manager.' She worked the end of her pencil once at the dial of the telephone on her desk, spoke briefly in a low voice, and then told George, "'He'll be right with you.' George wondered if this was normal procedure or something special that might reveal more about himself than he was ready at once to make known." He hoped there was nothing unusual about it. Mr. Dunbar, a smooth, ivy-league-looking young man whose button-down shirt-collar and clothes George admired, appeared and looked over him closely, but not too sharply, saying, "'I understand you're interested in buying some stock.' "'You can sell it to me, can't you?' George asked. Mr. Dunbar gave a slight genial laugh. "'That's what we're here for.' He motioned the two chairs set against the wall near the entrance of the place, and they sat down, rather inanely, because George could not find anything else to say at this stage of affairs, he observed, "'That's good.' Mr. Dunbar looked at him again and asked, "'Now, son, what's your name?' Caught off guard, George began, "'Well, it's—' He stopped. He had resolved not to give any part of his name, not until matters had reached a stage he could trust.' "'That doesn't matter, does it?' Mr. Dunbar now looked at him with no pretense of not being sharp, but he answered lightly, "'Not particularly, except, of course, we would have to know in the event of any sale.' "'That's all right,' said George. Mr. Dunbar now nodded as though with approval. "'I don't blame you for keeping your business to yourself. It's best to do that. 
fortunes have been founded on the ability to do just that. It's not art, it's not, it's an art not many people have, most wanting to shoot off their mouths. Is that so? George asked. He resolved to remember that. Mr. Dunbar asked, what did you have in mind? Well, said George, looking at the board of stock quotations, to begin with, I thought one share of a blue chip. Mr. Dunbar nodded approval. Gravely, he said, that's a good choice. There is little chance of going wrong there. Are you thinking of any particular one? Judiciously, George said, maybe American Telephone and Telegraph or General Motors. Mr. Dunbar now gazed upon him. Do you know what they're quoted at? Not exactly. Mr. Dunbar glanced at the board. Right now, tell and tell is 67 and 7 eighths, while GM is 97 and 1 half. George had enough for tell and tell, but not enough for General Motors. Then make it tell and tell, he said. And you have enough to cover a share of that, together with the brokerage commission? George started to reach in his pocket to prove this, then did not. There was no hurry about that. I've got enough, he said, but there's one thing. What's that? asked Mr. Dunbar. Does anybody else have to know about it? Mr. Dunbar cleared his throat. I was about to mention that, son. George's heart fell. You mean they would? You see, we can't sell to a miner like you unless it's a custodian account. What's that? Whatever it was, George didn't like it. It means you have to have the consent of one of your parents, closest relative or guardian, and the stock certificate could be issued only in the joint names of this person and the junior. George felt dashed all the way to the floor. I see. His grand plan had fallen down like a fragile house of cards. He persisted, inviting Mr. Dunbar to break the rules. It can't be done any other way. I'm afraid not. Even if later it was a lot of money with a big commission? Mr. Dunbar regarded him evenly. No matter what it was. Is it the same with all stockbrokers? It's a strict regulation all must keep to. We'd be glad to issue you the certificate on the custodian basis if you will bring, say, your father with you. We do this occasionally, and it works very well. George said, not meaning it. I didn't know. I'll talk to my father about it. He rose, and Mr. Dunbar got up with him. You do that, and come back to see us. Mr. Dunbar watched George leaving the office before he turned back to his other work. When George reached the street, he was raging with anger. It's always the same, he told himself fiercely. They never let you do anything you really want to do. Here you've got $86.40, and you can't buy what you want with it. Well, to hell with them, to hell with them all. Some day he'd do the things he really wanted. No matter who got in his way, he'd do them, and nobody would stop him. That brings us to the end of segment 18. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.